Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. My name is Nick Garisco. You can find me on Instagram at Fantasy Law Guy. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode four. It's time to get hyped. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. We let him off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep a trick the ball down the field, boy. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. All right, I hope that intro hyped you up because hype is exactly what today's show is all about. Which players are getting hyped up by the expert community? One of the purposes of this podcast is to keep listeners apprised of the ongoing conversations and debates taking place among the fantasy football community of experts that I follow and track and spend time reading their articles on a daily basis. So I have a pretty strong sense on how the industry as a whole is viewing certain players. And that's important because those stances dictate how players are ranked, which in turn drive average draft position, which of course is important to know prior to your fantasy football drafts because you should be using ADP to formulate your draft board and your strategy. That's kind of how all this works. And every offseason, the experts get excited about a group of players based on analytics or beat writer reports or what have you, a number of different reasons. But this groupthink in the industry can create hype trains, which often causes the public to jump on board the train for a specific player. And correspondingly, the hype train causes the player's ADP to rise. And we'll find out who those players are and whether or not we should buy in But before we do that, we have to kick off with some major fantasy news. 49ers running back Raheem Mostert has demanded a trade. This is after a string of negotiations, which apparently have not gone well. All he wants is to be paid like a starting running back. He wants Tevin Coleman money, the other running back on the 49ers, which I believe is around $4 million a year. And it's not a huge ask, in my opinion. It's very reasonable. And based on how Mostert contributed to the team last year and helped them get to a Super Bowl, I think it's manageable. I'm kind of surprised that the 49ers aren't really budging here. I'm surprised they're having issues. But nonetheless, he's got two years left on his deal, and he's barely making anything. But this is a pretty tough situation because Kyle Shanahan is pretty notorious for – he's on team running backs don't matter. He's rarely spent high draft capital on a running back. And he's always been able to plug guys into his system and watch them thrive. Raheem Mostert himself is a perfect example of this. He came off the bench basically as a special teams player. And he excelled down the stretch. He was the 49ers' fourth running back for the first half of the season. He was behind Tevin Coleman. He was behind Matt Breida. He was behind Jeff Wilson. And Coleman and Breida were kind of bitten by the injury bug. And Coleman missed a few games early with a high ankle sprain that limited his effectiveness after returning. Brita got hurt in week 11, and that was when Mostert started getting playing time, but only kind of in mop-up duty at first. 
And he was always efficient when he get, did get it on the field, but it was usually when the Niners already had the game in hand. That was until week 13 against Baltimore. Breida was out, and Tevin Coleman got the start, but Mostert was the running back who got hot. And he was, frankly, dominating the Ravens on a sloppy, rain-soaked field. It's a little slow out there. Rain last night. Oh, this baby loves the slop. Loves it. Eats it up. Eats the slop. Born the slop. His father was a mutter. His father was a mutter. His mother was a mutter. His mother was a mutter. What did I just say? Mostert gashed the Ravens for 146 yards on 19 carries, and he scored in that game too. And he basically unseated Tevin Coleman as a starter thereafter, and he parlayed that into greatness in the final eight games of the season including three postseason games. So five regular season games, three postseason games. He rushed for 715 yards on only 117 carries. That's 6.1 yards per carry in that span. Tops in the league. And he scored 11 touchdowns in that eight-game span. Obviously, that's a lot of fantasy points. 19.77 points per game to be exact. And Saquon Barkley last year, RB6 in points per game. And I have him as 19.7 points per game as well. Just to give you an idea of how great Mostert was in the fantasy playoffs and in real life playoffs. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Mostert was actually kind of a waiver wire gem that helped a lot of people win their fantasy football championships. And he was splitting time with Tevin Coleman too during all this. Mostert played only 34 snaps a game in that span. And he was getting more of the early down work, but he was getting subbed out on receiving downs. Breida was out of the rotation by that point or hurt. Uh, But the fact that Mostert had 12 targets only in those eight games, only nine catches in eight games, that makes him a much more appealing uh, standard league guy. And I hate saying standard leagues because now, unfortunately, the standard, quote-unquote, is PPR. So what I mean to say is non-PPR leagues. I think they need to change the new the new name from standard to traditional or old school or something like that. But I digress. What's so interesting about Mostert's outlook is what happened in the playoffs. And that is when the 49ers had their first game against Minnesota. And Tevin Coleman, who I guess was healthier after a bye week, he looked fresh, and, and Kyle Shanahan rode the hot hand there. Tevin Coleman had 22 carries for 105 yards and two touchdowns in that game, and Mostert was only 12 carries for 58 yards, zero scores. So then Coleman gets the start the next game. Mostert started all these games when he's on this run, but Coleman gets to start the next game, the NFC Championship game against Green Bay, and both backs were kind of sharing the load at first, the first couple of drives. Mostert was playing a lot better, but Coleman actually separated his shoulder in that game and only played eight snaps. And then Mostert went on to have what was actually the second greatest rushing performance in NFL history. 29 carries, 220 yards, four touchdowns, 44 fantasy points in that game. Mostert went 12 for 58 and a touch on the 35 snaps he got in the Super Bowl when it mattered most. Coleman actually started that game, but Coleman only saw five carries on 17 snaps. And that's significant, even though he's playing through the separated shoulder, that's significant because obviously it's the Super Bowl. They're going to do everything it takes to win the game. And 
Kyle Shanahan pretty much rode with Mostert. In fact, arguably, he should have given the ball to Mostert more in that game because the Chiefs never really showed they could stop him. But that is ancient history now. What a coulda, shoulda. I'm sure Kyle Shanahan has many Super Bowl regrets in the last five or so years. Mostert's 5.5 yards per carry was the highest mark in the NFL. Tevin Coleman's, he only averaged 4.0 yards a carry for the same team. He was expected to go into the season to start, or Mostert was. And there were reports that he's bulked up this offseason to kind of assume that role. But here, Kyle Shanahan has shown deference to Tevin Coleman. Again, remember he brought Coleman over from Atlanta. Coleman has never proven he could be the guy or get that kind of workload without getting hurt. And that's exactly what happened last year when he did get the majority of the work for the start of the season. He didn't hold up. High ankle sprain. The other wild card that I need to mention in this backfield is that Jarek McKinnon. Remember that guy? Old Vikings backup running back. Speaking of hype trains that we're going to talk about later, experts were all over that guy. I was not, but he did tear his ACL before even playing it down with San Fran. He's still recovering from that. That was two years ago. He's yet to resume cutting and hasn't played football in two years. So that's not exactly expiring a lot of confidence there. I will say this. I actually think Raheem Mostert's talent is not appreciated enough. I think he's, he's hashtag good. My personal evaluation doesn't really matter, though. His ESPN ranking right now, RB24. He's got an average draft position of on FFPC high stakes, fantasy football leagues, is, is 55 overall. So he was going in about the fourth or fifth round, and I think he went in the fourth round of the mock draft that I did in the last episode. Feel free to check that out. Unfortunately for most of the demand for running backs is barren, non-existent. It's quiet. Too quiet. I don't think anyone's saying, oh, let's give up assets for Raheem Mostert and then sign him to a long-term deal. I don't think any other team is really saying that. So a trade would likely be pretty devastating for his fantasy value. Nowhere really sets him up for more fantasy success than San Francisco. But I don't blame Mostert for getting paid. Don't get me wrong. He's making next to nothing right now. He's making special teams money. And he's coming off the hottest stretch ever. He's one of the Niners' best players in the Super Bowl. He arguably got helped get them to the Super Bowl. He's already been on several teams, and this is kind of it for him. This is his time. So I don't blame his agent for holding out or demanding a trade or whatever he's going to end up doing. But I'll also say this, and I want to make this very clear. Just because he had a trade request, and that's not good for his fantasy outlook right now, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean I'm jumping the gun on a guy like Tevin Coleman. I'm... I'm I'm pumping the brakes on assuming Coleman is going to be the guy, which he's never shown he can do. Coleman right now is being drafted in round 10, and Mostert obviously in round, we just discussed round 5, or maybe even round 4. But just because Mostert requested a trade doesn't mean he's going to get his wishes granted. That's the first thing. And second thing is, they may work out a long-term deal. And if anything, that that would make me like him more in fantasy if the 49ers caved and paid him. And third, the 49ers can always bring in another guy to share the workload with Tevin Coleman. Lamar Miller's out there. Devonta Freeman's out there. Not exactly the most prolific options, but Tevin Coleman, again, has never proved he can be that lead back without getting hurt. So yes, right now, this is definitely bad news for Raheem Mostert. 
and good news for Coleman. And if I had a draft today, maybe they'd be closer together where they're drafted. Maybe Raheem moves down and Coleman moves up. Maybe they split the difference and they're both like seventh round picks because of the uncertainty and the potential for both in this backfield. But I do think this situation is going to be resolved. My gut is kind of telling me that this is kind of posturing and the agent trying to gain leverage in the negotiation. Ultimately, I think it's more likely than not that the 49ers are going to re-sign Raheem Mostert to a reasonable and short-term deal. In the meantime, though, Tevin Coleman's definitely going to be getting some hype from the expert community, but he is not one of the hyped players on this list today, which we will get to right now. Okay, it's time to get hyped. Let's talk about the players that the experts in the industry are giving the most love to. Now, this does come with a warning, though. It comes with a little disclaimer, because it's important to remember that hype trains can also crash. I spot the train. I'm taking it out. Just because the majority of experts are considered high on a player does not mean that targeting them is always a sharp move. Experts are wrong often. I mean, look at last year. Some of the most hyped players by the fantasy community in the last offseason were David Montgomery, Curtis Samuel, O.J. Howard, Darwin Thompson. I loved all those guys last year. They were huge misses. And those are just the ones that come to mind because I was on board too. There are plenty of expert darlings that ended up flopping that I correctly faded. But on the other hand, there's always guys like Chris Godwin. Massive hype surrounding him last offseason. He panned out big time. And I think what happens is that most people get FOMO. There's like a few players every offseason that get so much love from all the experts that sometimes it gets to the point where the market drives their cost up so high that they become so expensive. But people just fear missing out on the next big thing. So they reach for these guys without really maybe focusing on the downside. Everybody wants to be cool and follow the trends. And honestly, I've learned myself, the more that I actually jump on these hype board trains, the more I actually get involved with the players who are hyped the most. Whether, again, it's not always by experts. Sometimes it's about beat writers, you know, talking about the guys catching everything in training camp, you know, these training camp reports. But the more I jump on these hype trains, the more often that I get burned. At least more often than not, I feel like it ends up in flames. But that's kind of a ramble. Suffice it to say that groupthink among the experts in the industry, including myself, can be dangerous. And that's why on today's podcast, I want to reveal who the experts are jumping on because sometimes they're right. But whether or not the hype is warranted, there are obvious counterpoints. We want to find out what the other side is. Why won't some of these players live up to the increased expectations. So let's get started. So first up is the Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Calvin Ridley, also known as, in the expert community, is quote-unquote this year's Chris Godwin. That is the big cliche for Calvin Ridley. You'll probably hear that a lot this offseason as it progresses. And he's one of the biggest offseason risers following the losses of both Mohamed Sanu and Austin Cooper which a lot of experts are seeing very similar to Deshaun Jackson and Adam Humphreys departing from Tampa Bay, which left Chris Godwin the opportunity he needed to succeed. And experts are citing the splits with and without Austin Hooper. 
Calvin Ridley in his first nine games of last season, he only averaged 12.3 points per game. But in the final four games that he played, weeks 11 through 14, he averaged 21.5 points per game. Only Michael Thomas was higher than that. And the lines that he posted during those games are as followed. And keep in mind, Austin Hooper was out for these games. And that's the point of the split. Week 11, eight targets, eight catches, 143 yards, and a touchdown against Carolina. Week 12, 14 targets, six catches, 85 yards, one touchdown against Tampa Bay. Week 13, 10 targets, eight catches, 91 yards, no scores against New Orleans. Week 14, five targets, five catches, 76 yards, one touchdown against Carolina. And he also exited in that game with an abdominal injury. And that caused him to miss weeks 15 through 17. But he only played 36 snaps before getting carted off in that Carolina game where, again, he was five targets, five catches, 76 yards, and a touch on only 36 snaps, like half a game. So, yeah, Calvin really was awesome in games that Austin Hooper was out. However, it's important to note, one thing I noticed while I was game logging is that Julio Jones Julio, get the stretch. was also out a little bit during that time. In week 12, Julio Jones exited. And that was when Calvin really got 14 targets. But 10 of those targets were after the break. Julio exited right before halftime. So really kind of made things happen in that game in garbage time. After Julio Jones exited already. So that was one issue there. And another kind of red flag or reason to not doubt these splits. But a reason to kind of poke holes in these splits here. Is that Julio Jones was also out for week 13 against New Orleans. That was the 10 target, 8 catches, 91 yards, 0 touchdowns. That was that game. And that was also Phil, That was also kind of a fluky game for Calvin Ridley because in that game, specifically, although Ridley was battling with Marshawn Lattimore most of the night, Lattimore really had his number in that game until very late in the game when the Falcons kind of miraculously recovered two onside kicks late in that game, like in a row. And gave the Falcons two extra possessions in garbage time. And that's where Calvin Ridley uh, racked up three of his longer catches. So those are worth noting. But you still can't deny that the splits are much better without Austin Hooper and Muhammad Sanu in the fold. Now the Falcons did bring in Hayden Hurst, that tight end, to replace Hooper. But he has no established rapport with Matt Ryan. And I don't know if he'll be able to really get one this offseason because of COVID, I know that they have worked out together at least once. They posted that on Instagram. Another thing in favor of Calvin Ridley, another expert on him, is Matthew Harmon, uh, leader of reception or inventor of reception perception. He grades, or I shouldn't say grades, he watches every single pass route run by receivers. And he ranks Calvin Ridley in the 85th percentile versus man coverage. Very high marks. So he's kind of got the Matthew Harmon reception perception stamp of approval, which is a nice thing to have in the fantasy world. One thing against him, uh, Michelle, and I don't know how to pronounce this name correctly, so I apologize in advance, Michelle, but uh, Madzoik, I guess, is my best pronunciation. I don't think that's right, but at Ball Blastem, she's one of the two girls running Ball Blast Fantasy Football. She says she's a great line here, and she says, is everybody just forgetting about the fact that Chris Godwin was never given his shot to be the wide receiver two on his team until 2019? Ridley has been the wide receiver two and just isn't a top 15 receiver with Julio healthy. Are we just going to ignore that? Okay, got it. So her kind of sarcastic tweet is kind of saying here that 
Well, Ridley's actually been the starter on this team for like a year and a half, getting full snaps. And he hasn't been better. I believe he was receiver 19 in points per game last year. So it's not like he's really broken out. Obviously, you can point to Hooper and Mohamed Sanu being gone now. The Falcon, one thing going in his favor is the Falcons don't have like a third receiver. Uh, Todd Gurley isn't really used much in the receiving game anymore, which is good. Uh, Russell Gage is their third receiver right now. So if you're asking who that is, that's kind of exactly the point. But Ridley's definitely in a situation where it can be a 30-year breakout. I think the arguments that I like the most are his lack of competition for targets. It's really just him and Julio. And I also like the argument that what if 31-year-old Julio Jones goes down? He's kind of had a string of healthy seasons in a row. What if he goes down? Then Calvin Ridley could be a league winner here. But my favorite argument is that the Falcons have a good quarterback, a horrible defense, and they play indoors, and they'll be in a lot of shootouts because of that defense. Game flow will be huge. And I'm a huge proponent of game flow. I mean, not a huge proponent of game flow. Game flow often dictates a lot more of these stats and fantasy lines that players record than people realize. I mean, that's one of my biggest takeaways every year when I game log. In Atlanta specifically, they relied on a lot of garbage time last year. And I kind of see that as a negative because usually what will happen there is that the next year they won't be in such negative game scripts. However, what's changed here? The Falcons defense is still terrible. They still play indoors. They're still kind of built to be in shootouts via their passing game. And they still have a very pass-happy offensive coordinator. So if I'm trying to say whether I'm – I am trying to say whether I'm in or out on each player's hype or whether I'm buying or selling it. And I would say for Ridley, I am buying it. I am in, especially in round four. But unlike Chris Godlin, I do want to temper expectations. I don't think top five is in Calvin Ridley's range of outcomes. Maybe if Julio gets hurt. But right now we can't project that. I don't think he is the ceiling that Chris Godwin had last year. I don't think he's as talented as Godwin. I don't think that he's as physically dominant to score you know, 12-plus touchdowns, which is what it would probably take to be in the top five. I can easily foresee like a 90-catch, 1,200-yard, seven-touchdown season. But Godwin had 1,300 yards and nine touchdowns in 14 games last year. And I value Ridley less because of what all the experts are saying, like, oh, he's got Godwin-like breakout potential. And I value him more because I just think his floor is really high. I think he's as safe as they come as a pick in round four because of all the reasons I discussed. So let's move on to Miles Sanders. And he is the apple of many experts' eyes. I mentioned in episode two how his ADP was getting out of control. It's up to eight overall in experts in high-stakes leagues compared to ESPN rank of... 21 overall, and Fantasy Pro's ADP of 16th overall. So obviously this is a perfect example of why or how the experts are much higher than Miles Sanders than the general websites and the general public. So, or the mainstream websites, I'd say, and the general public. I won't give the full breakdown of Miles Sanders' positive and negatives here because I'd be repeating myself a lot because if you want to check that out, you can check it out in episode two, I believe. But the spark notes are this. Miles Sanders, everyone likes him, or the experts like him because he was RB7 in weeks 11 through 17 last year after taking over lead back duties for Philadelphia once Jordan Howard went down. He is a very good receiver, and he catches a lot of passes. In fact, according to, let's see, Derek Brown at dbro underscore FFB, for, he works for FTN. Uh, Sanders, Miles Sanders and Austin Eckler were the only two running backs with 50-plus targets 
who averaged more than 10 yards per reception. So Sanders is one of two, and that just kind of speaks to how great he is as a receiver. Runs a lot of routes. He's not just getting dump-off passes. He runs a lot of routes downfield. He's young. He was at Bell Cow in college. He plays for a good team with a good quarterback, good offensive line. Uh, that makes his floor higher. Although they did lose, his O-line did lose Brandon Brooks, probably the best guard in the NFL with a torn Achilles. So that really hurts. Those are all the positives. Those are all the reasons why the experts are on him. The negative side of the coin is, or the other side of the coin is, Doug Peterson, head coach of the Eagles, has a history of running back by committees. They used Boston Scott like Darren Sproles late last year. Uh, Peterson didn't really draft any running backs. He didn't really bring any to competition. There was talks about them bringing Carlos Hyde. They didn't. Uh, But Peterson also drafted Sanders in round two. So you can make the argument that he's never really had a running back like uh, Miles Sanders. I I hear that a lot. I see that tweeted a lot as well. Um, But the fact of the matter is Doug Peterson's always kind of been an RBBC kind of guy. And I've seen Sanders drafted as high as seventh overall in several high stakes drafts. And the experts view him a lot higher than his rankings on websites like Fantasy Pros or ESPN like I talked about. Matthew Barry, like I've discussed, is one of the few big names in the industry who is off Sanders as I also mentioned episode two, I think that Sanders is going to be a really popular pick at the round one or two turn, but I would have to say that I'm out on Sanders at that cost. We will see. I'm, I'm interested to see how the offseason shakes out. I'm interested to see how high he really rises on those mainstream sites. So let's move on to number three player that is I, I see is most hyped among the experts, and that is Steelers wide receiver Deontay Johnson. He is getting a ton of love in the expert community. I mean, you, you wouldn't even believe it. Sound like Donald Trump there. But the Steelers wide receiver, he's entering his second year. And let me, I, let me just tell you how much expert he's getting right now. Fantasy Pros half-point PPR ADP has him at 123 overall. Okay, His ESPN rank is 96 overall. But if you look at where the experts are drafting him, his FFPC ADP, 83 overall. And then the NFFC, another high-stakes format, 72 overall. That's the highest I've seen, 72 overall. And again, this is compared to Fantasy Pro's half-point PPR, has him at 123 overall. So this is a massive, massive difference between the Sharks of the fantasy world and either casual rankings like from ESPN or, or the public. So Johnson astonishingly led the Steelers in targets last year with 92 catches with 59 and receiving scores with five. And he did so with abysmal quarterback play. And he also did it while apparently playing hurt. He told reporters that he sustained a growing injury in week two last year. And he also, he had sports hernia operation on that in February and it was seen as a minor cleanup, but he admitted that he was going through that injury for most of his rookie season. I actually don't know if he's at 100% full strength yet, but he's getting there. So Matthew Harmon, I just talked about him uh, giving his sign of approval for Calvin Ridley. He also gives it for Deontay Johnson. He says, I quote, Deontay Johnson was one of my biggest risers after charting his hashtag reception perception data. Nice breakout bet. 75% success rate against man coverage and 75% success rate against press coverage. That is 85th percentile and 81st percentile among the receivers he charts, respectively. So pretty good. It's always nice to have Matthew Harmon's stamp of approval. I love reception perception. Scott Barrett is, he lays out what I think, Scott Barrett of Fantasy Points, which is at Scott Barrett DFB 
on Twitter, he lays out a very compelling argument for in favor of Deontay Johnson in a paragraph. He says, and I'm just basically reading the paragraph to you. I'm not even paraphrasing here. So this is Scott Barrett's paragraph. According to Pro Football Focus, Deontay, Deontay Johnson was charted as open on 84% of his targets last year. That ranks second best behind only Michael Thomas among non-majority slot receivers and among all 63 wide receivers with an A dot of 9.0 or higher that led the league. Although Deontay Johnson is getting separation at an elite level, as a rookie no less, Pittsburgh's quarterbacks were playing at a Mark Sanchezian level, doing a grave disservice and leaving a lot of fantasy points on the table. Just 44% of Johnson's targets were deemed accurate in 2019, which in contrast to his expectation based on ADOT, ranked fourth worst of 82 qualifying wide receivers. With Ben Roethlisberger under center in 2020, look for Johnson to have a massive jump in efficiency. So yeah, those are some real analytical stats right there that Scott Barrett uses to make his compelling argument. I, I must say, I must caveat that by saying that there are debates about the usage of separation and whether, separation stats I should say, and whether or not it really translates to fantasy production. The theory behind separation stats is that if a wide receiver is getting open at a better rate than his peers, then he should have more opportunities to catch passes that are thrown his way, or at least he should be getting more looks. And ideally, the team would recognize that he's open more often once they review the tape and make arrangements accordingly. Hayden Winks of Roto World, he refutes the importance of separation big time. He says yards of separation is a bogus stat for wide receivers. Separation actually is negatively correlated to receptions, a negative correlation to receiving yards, and a negative correlation to receiving touchdowns. And that's because, he says, quarterbacks throw the ball to good receivers even when they are tightly covered. I would also throw in there that good receivers get more coverage tilted their way, so it's harder for them to separate from defenders. Like when a linebacker is focused on covering a zone to take away the underneath routes for a receiver or a safety is is on you over the top. I remember last year Dante Pettis was kind of the poster child of yards of separation gained. And that obviously didn't mean squat. But that is not actually the main argument against Deontay Johnson. There's one thing that's going completely ignored within the expert community I, should, I, I won't say completely ignored, but quietly swept under the rug by most Sharks. And that is James Washington's emergence over the second half of the season. James Washington and Deontay Johnson had very strikingly similar stats over the final 10 games after the Steelers' bye last week. And if, this is all with different quarterbacks. This is all with different, you know, they had three quarterbacks, or probably two quarterbacks, Rudolph and Mason Rudolph in that frame, and they had... Duck Hodges in that frame. And then Juju Smith-Schuster played some games, didn't play some games. But final 10 games, I'm just going to read off their stats. James Washington, see how close they are when I read them. James Washington, 442 snaps. Deontay Johnson, 429 snaps. James Washington, 35 catches on 59 targets. Deontay Johnson, 39 catches on 61 targets. James Washington, 595 yards. Deontay Johnson, 468 yards. Both had three touchdowns. James Washington, 11.05 points per game during that stretch. Final 10 games of the season. Deontay Johnson, 11.13 points per game. 
almost equal. Yet Washington is ranked 60 spots lower on ESPN, and that's not even that bad. Compared to the experts, FFPC ADP for James Washington, 233rd overall. Why are seemingly all of the experts just assuming that Deontay Johnson is going to take this massive leap into stardom, but James Washington is going to fall off the face of the earth, apparently. Washington is 24 years old, same age as Johnson. Pittsburgh spent a second-round pick on James Washington. They spent a third-round pick on on Deontay Johnson. Deontay Johnson's 5'10", 183 pounds. Washington's 5'11", 213 pounds. They have the same 40 time. The Steelers also drafted another wide receiver in the second round this year, Chase Claypool. He's 6'4", 238. He's huge. And there were talks about him playing tight end. And they also, speaking of tight ends, they also added Eric Ebron, who's been inconsistent throughout his career, but he's a huge red zone target. I understand the reasons that make him an attractive breakout candidate. He seems like a really good player. But it's absolutely mind-boggling to me how different the industry as a whole sees Deontay Johnson, and James Washington. Johnson may look better on film, but they look identical on paper. And yet, there's a 160-player gap in average draft position. 160-player. 160 players are drafted, on average, between Deontay Johnson and James Washington. That's madness. If you want to crown Johnson, that's fine. If you want to crown them, then crown their ass. But any expert who props up Deontay Johnson without even mentioning James Washington is doing you a grave disservice because they aren't telling you the whole story, just the narrative that you want to hear. And sorry, I'm getting a little passionate here, but that kind of stuff rubs me the wrong way with the fantasy experts out there. I'm probably out on Johnson if he's being picked in the 70s. I'm cool with him. He falls to me later. I got nothing against Johnson. I'm just more upset about the distance between Johnson and James Washington. Johnson has the upside that I look for at that point of the draft, you know, later after, you know, pick 70, I guess, as Big Ben's number two receiver. And, but I'm, I'm definitely in on taking a last round or best ball flyer on James Washington, though. Because let's say one of those guys has to break out, which is no guarantee, by the way. I mean, they may well just cancel one another out and make them impossible to predict to predict on a week-to-week basis. But let's say one of them does break out. The industry's experts would have you believe that it's a 95% chance that Johnson is the one to break out and a 5% chance that it's James Washington. I think it's closer to 70-30, maybe even 65-45. That doesn't add up to 100. Psych! That's the wrong number! I don't know why I said that in favor of Deontay Johnson, but Deontay Johnson cost you a seventh round pick and James Washington is free. So my math may have been wrong on the percentages, but I will take Washington's math in a cost benefit analysis. The fourth player that the experts are hyping up big time, and there's a massive discrepancy in casual rankings and where the experts are drafting this guy. J.K. Dobbins, running back for the Baltimore Ravens, rookie, 
His ESPN rank right now, 123. Fantasy Pros rank or ADP is 94. FFPC Expert High Stakes League ADP 62.7. It's worth noting that FFPC is a running back heavy league, but what a stark contrast there. The experts are really excited about the landing spot in Baltimore, a team who ranked first in rushing attempts by far, all kinds of rushing efficiency metrics. Baltimore is just known as the most run-heavy team in the NFL. They drafted J.K. Dobbins 55th overall in round two despite Mark Ingram's presence. They said after the draft that the team wasn't necessarily looking for a running back, but Dobbins had a first-round grade on their board, so it would have been, quote-unquote, irresponsible not to take him at 55. Dobbins did not participate at the NFL Combine, but he's kind of seen around the league as this excellent athlete. He profiles as an every-down back. He rushed for over 2,000 yards, Ohio State record last season, and he recorded almost 800 touches throughout his college career. Pretty impressive stuff has shown that he's a capable wide receiver, or not wide receiver, receiver out of the backfield as well. Graham Barfield of FantasyPoints.com is one of the bigger proponents of J.K. Dobbins. He, I'm going to use some of his lines here. Quote, no running back in the rookie class is more accustomed to RPO reads than J.K. Dobbins. A class high 57% of Dobbins' 2020 attempts were on run pass options. And the Ravens, Easily lead the NFL in RPO rush attempts last year with 230. So that's an excellent point by Graham Barfield. Great argument in favor of J.K. Dobbins' fit with the Ravens. Uh, His other line that I really like is J.K. Dobbins' nimbleness and ability to convert his burst speed into power is something else. Dobbins' 5.04 yards created per attempt is the best among consensus top five running backs. So... Graham Barfield charts a lot of these rookie running backs coming out and does a metric called, it's kind of similar to Matthew Harmon's reception perception where he judges how receivers separate. However, this one is about how many yards running backs kind of create on their own. Like if you were to not include how much the offensive line is helping them. In that charting, Graham Barfield noted that J.K. Dobbins was his most impressive player among the 2020 rookies and among a lot of the rookies who have come out in recent years. So Dobbins ranks like near the top of the list. So Barfield is all about J.K. Dobbins. Um, I think if J.K. Dobbins had an every down role as the Ravens lead back, he's definitely a league winning fantasy pick. I think that's clear. But there's that Mark Ingram guy, right? I mean, he's 31 but he saw 202 carries last year, and he kind of had a nose for the end zone. He scored 15 times last year. I'm not confident the Ravens are going to just put J.K. Dobbins in you know, when they're inside the 10-yard line, when they're inside the 5-yard line, especially if Ingram's scoring at that rate. Ingram is also, he was also charted by Pro Football Focus as the top, the number one rated pass-blocking running back. Coaches love running backs who can block. So this is a situation where Mark Ingram will probably be the starter. He'll get that starter deference as a veteran. And other than age, there's really no reason for me to assume that Ingram will just kind of fall on his face and die. 
played really well last year. So Dobbins should kind of slowly pick up more carries as the season progresses. When will he finally supplant Ingram? I don't know. It's hard to say. Dobbins, to me, is like the perfect pick if you can be patient at running back. I love where he's going in ESPN. Yeah, I'll gobble him up in the 120s. I'm not expecting my ninth or 10th rounder to contribute in my starting lineup immediately. And I can be patient and wait for him to maybe have this great second half stretch. But in expert drafts, he's going like in round six. And that's a little too rich for my blood. So I guess I'm out on the hype. I'm selling on the hype for J.K. Dobbins right now. At least at that cost. And I think the COVID offseason is definitely a part of it. He's a rookie. I want to bet more on continuity. And it may take him more time that he's not really going to be able to get in preseason or practice. Because we may only have like one preseason game. And definitely fewer practices. And I definitely don't like that the Ravens lost their all-world guard, Marsha Yonda. I also don't like that they'll have to throw more this year because they only trailed on, I think it was 19% of the time last year, trailed in games. We also don't have evidence that Lamar Jackson targets his running backs often. But that those aren't even the main reasons. The main reason I don't, or at least another reason that I don't love J.K. Dobbins is that the Ravens have other running backs too. Gus Edwards, Justice Hill. If it was just Dobbins and Ingram going into the season, and I knew like 95% of the running back touches would be divvied up between those two, yeah, I think I'd be on board. But John Harbaugh said in a Zoom session like a month ago that he envisions roles for all four of his running backs. Yeah, that may be coach speak, but it's worth mentioning that Gus Edwards was one of the most efficient runners in the NFL the last two years. Both years, he had like right around 130 carries for like 700 yards. And it was 5.2 carries in his rookie year and 5.3 yards a carry in his second year. So otherworldly efficient Gus Edwards is. So yeah, if it was just Ingram and Dobbins and I'd never heard of the third string running back, sure. That might be more appealing, but it's not. So I guess I got to be out for now. So before I move on to the final two players on this list, I do want to remind y'all that if you have not already, please subscribe to this podcast and give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you like what you hear. Your support with that kind of stuff is extremely important, and I would greatly appreciate you for doing so. Uh, I hate shameless plugs like that. I believe in growing content organically. If it's good content, I think people will come. Fantasy football is a little different, though, I've learned, because if somebody really likes your fantasy content, the last thing you want to do is share it with your buddies in your fantasy league. That's your competition. And I know that firsthand. I'm not, I've been hesitant in the past to spill all the stuff I read that I think is valuable to my friends because I like winning. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break. So yeah, any share or subscription or like or five-star rating, whatever you do, that stuff really helps. It's really necessary to help a young pod grow. So if you like what you hear, please help me out. So we will move on to Drew Locke. And this is kind of a backup quarterback here, at least for fantasy purposes. 
not as prominent of a fantasy player yet, at least. The experts in favor argue that his athleticism will provide a rushing floor. The Broncos showed faith in him this offseason by addressing the quarterback position and surrounding him with skill position talent. They signed Melvin Gordon. They drafted Jerry Judy in round one. They uh, they drafted Penn State speedster KJ Hamler in round two and receiving tight end Albert O in, in round four. They also have alpha dog receiver Cortland Sutton. Uh, first round tight end Noah Fant enters year two. So great supporting cast around Drew Locke. And Derek Brown of FTN did note that Denver was 27th in passing attempts last year and new offensive coordinator Pat Shermer's passing attempts rankings from 2019 on downward by year is 9th, 9th, 21st, 12th, 6th, 5th, 27th, 13th, 11th, 5th, 16th. That's it. So only two of 10 years in the bottom half of the league in passing attempts. So that's that's a good stat there by Derek Brown of FTN. The counters for Locke, and again, a lot of experts are on Locke. Uh, these are just my counters, uh, primarily at least. He, when I was game logging, he wasn't that impressive in fantasy last year. He was 29th in points per game. He only started five games. I think a lot of the hype surrounding Locke is that the Broncos did go 4-1 and one in those games, with a lone loss being to the Super Bowl, champion, Super Bowl champion Chiefs in the snow. He also has to learn his new off, uh, his fourth new offense in four years. And he's obviously raw, and he's, he's kind of a careless, risky playing style, similar to Jay Cutler. And Evan Silva, established the run, noted that Locke's opening schedule is brutal. Tennessee... Titans at first, they have pretty good defense, at Pittsburgh, and then at New England in three of the first five weeks. He also plays for a defensive-minded head coach in Vic Fangio who may hold Locke back. Ultimately, Evans sees that other experts are a year too early on Locke, and he's expecting kind of an up-and-down year in year two, and that's this year, and then a breakout year in year three, which is next year. So um, those are all good points by Evan. So, yeah, a lot of experts are on Drew Locke. Uh, but, again, he is primarily a guy that you may want to target for your super flex formats because in standard redraft leagues where it's 10 or 12 teams, if you're not in a very deep league, there might be no sense in even drafting a second quarterback, especially when that second quarterback's like quarterback 22 and he might be available to stream in free agency anyway. So, not necessarily somebody worth reaching for unless you are in the type of league that would require it. And speaking of those types of league, this is another quarterback that fits that bill. Teddy Bridgewater. Teddy Bridgewater in five games that he played in relief of Drew Brees last year. He averaged 241 passing yards a game. I think that's higher than I remember, at least as a Saints fan. He was on pace for 3,856 passing yards. I guess that sounds about right. Nine touchdowns, two interception, or sorry, two turnovers. So his touchdown to turnover ratio was 9 to 2. And he had 16.72 points per game. That ranks 17th in my points per game calculations. Experts who are high on Bridgewater point out that new 
head coach Matt Rule and new offensive coordinator Joe Brady are going to design a great passing attack in terms of scheme and play calling. And he also has a little continuity there because he works or at least a passionate relationship and familiarity with the scheme because he worked with Brady two years ago with the Saints. And my favorite argument is that the Panthers will be throwing less often because their defense sucks. I'm, I've already mentioned that I'm a big proponent of game flow, and I, I just think it's so important, and I can't stress that enough. I'll probably say it again on multiple other episodes, but last year, the Panthers led up the or they allowed the NFL's second most points per game with 29.4 points a game. And they allowed 31 rushing touchdowns. A whopping 31 rushing touchdowns. That's amazing. That has to be an NFL record, or at least close to it. They did that, and then they lost Luke Keekley. They lost defensive ends Mario Addison, defensive ends Bruce uh, Irvin. They lost defensive tackles Vernon Butler, Gerald McCoy, Dontari Poe, and Kyle Love. They lost their top cornerback, James Bradbury. They lost safety, Eric Reed. Man, there's just no end to these guys. They lost their two of their nickelbacks. Look at this photograph. Javian Elliott and Ross Cockrell. The argument is that their leaky defense will force Bridgewater to be more aggressive in terms of throwing downfield. He's always been, he's always had a very, very low A dot, to say the least. And he has a really nice receiving core of electric players with speed. DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel in the slot, likely. Robbie Anderson's speed to keep defenses honest over the top. Tight end Ian Thomas. And, of course, running back Christian McCaffrey out of the backfield is pretty deadly. Bridgewater, in some, could be a garbage-time king. The downsides of Bridgewater, at least in my estimation, are there's really no rushing there ever since he came back from that devastating knee injury you know he didn't run the ball at all with the saints last year and bridgewater's playing style is not really conducive to fantasy points to be honest i mean he's he's just not aggressive with the football maybe joe brady can help there maybe his receivers will help he's i think he's really accurate in the short and intermediate range i actually think that teddy bridgewater is one of the most accurate quarterbacks in those ranges in the entire league but the fact is he's been more of a game manager than a fantasy footballer and he's really never been a fan- good fantasy option for his entire career. His career high in touchdowns for a season was 17 touchdowns, and that was in 16 games with Minnesota back in 2015 before his catastrophic knee injury. So that's it. Those are the top, how many players did I name? I think it was six, top six players hyped up in general by the expert community. And let's. this isn't to say that they don't have arguments against them, of course. It's not to say that you shouldn't fade the noise. But there are a lot of positives about them, and I hopefully have done a good job revealing both positives and negatives for you so you can make the most informed decision whether you want to jump and hop on board that hype train yourself. The honorable mentions that I want to mention here that you know, we either don't have time for or that I feel like we'll be talking about later this offseason. Chiefs third wide receiver Nicole Hardman definitely getting a lot of hype, getting a lot of love in the later parts portions of the drafts. Uh, Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray, a ton of hype there. The only reason I didn't include him is because I discussed him in episode one, I believe, if you want to check that out. But also because 
the rankings and the fantasy pros and the public seems to be right in line kind of where the experts are. Like he's getting a lot of hype in general from everybody. Like I think everybody kind of sees him as that quarterback three through five. And whether you're expert or you're just, you know, Joe Blow off the street, pretty much everybody is expecting Kyler Murray to have a, a, a good season this year. Uh, Chiefs running back Clyde Edwards Hilaire. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel Air. Out of LSU. Uh, I only left him out because experts seem, there's a lot of hype surrounding him, but experts do seem somewhat split on him. I think they either rank him really high or they're out completely. So I think he's better for a show about maybe like most polarizing players or players with the, the widest range of outcomes, like arguments for sheer greatness or t- total uselessness. And maybe that might be an idea for another show in the future like most polarizing players, but but we will see in due time. That is a good idea. All right, it's time for today's nugget of the show. It comes from a tweet by JJ Zacharyson of Number Fire at Late Round QB. He tweeted, running backs in NFL history with 100 or more attempts during each of their first two seasons and a yards per carry rate at or above 5.0 in both seasons. Number one, Barry Sanders. Number two, Clinton Portis. Number three, Nick Chubb. And number four, Gus Edwards. Backup running back for the Baltimore Ravens. Talked about him earlier. And there you have it. That is the Nugget. All right, it's time for the two-minute warning rant of the week. This one may be three minutes, but we'll see. What if I told you that before you even begin your draft, a few teams in your fantasy leagues have a huge advantage over others without even taking into account experience or skill or how active they are in managing their teams? In 2013, CBS Sports went through all of their public fantasy leagues, hundreds of thousands, to see if there were any trends on a manager's winning percentage based on what pick they had in their snake drafts 1 through 12. That year, teams with pick 1 had an 8% chance to win their league. Teams with pick 2 had just under 10% chance. Picks 3 through 5 around 12% chance to win their league. Pick 6 around 10%. And then the drop off at pick 7 had an 8% chance to win their league. Picks 8 and 9 just above 6% chance. And picks 10 through 12 right around 5% chance. I had always known that early picks have a slight advantage, but that was the first time I recognized that this would this might be a huge problem for fantasy football. It's also about the time where auction drafts started becoming more popular. But let's say your league is into snake drafts, and that's the kind of league they are. Studies like these have been replicated over the years. The sample size is large enough to state unequivocally that managers have a better chance of winning their leagues if they draw picks 1 through 3. Most studies on this topic reveal that picks 1 through 4 nearly have twice the advantage of teams picking 10 through 12. In other words, when compared to picking 10 through 12, your odds of winning your league at picks 1 through 3 are increased by 100%. Teams picking at the end of the draft you are half as likely to win your league as others before any picks are made. It's fun to play draft games to determine who gets to pick first and second, etc. But the draft order that is snaked because it's intended to be fair is extremely unfair. How can we correct this injustice? My favorite way is the third round reversal. Third round reversal 
is basically what it sounds like. It's the exact same thing as a regular snake draft, except the direction of the draft reverses at the start of the third round. So instead of having the team with the first overall pick get two in a row at the end of round two and the start of round three, the team with the last pick in round one will also get the first pick in round three. And the draft will continue to snake as it regularly does from there on. The main reason why is because a player's value falls off at a logarithmic rate, not a linear rate. The difference between the first and 12th best players is much, much, much greater than the difference between the 13th and 24th best players. In other words, just because you get to pick first in round two doesn't mean you're on an even playing field as the person who has has to pick last in round two. This doesn't sound like much, but it's huge. Let's put some player names in there to help. With no third round reversal, Team 1 may get Christian McCaffrey, the most valuable player in fantasy, by 10 points a game last season, Mike Evans, and George Kittle. And the 12th pick may wind up with Nick Chubb, DeAndre Hopkins, and Zach Ertz. In third round reversal, using similar players, Team 1 would get Christian McCaffrey, Mike Evans, and Zach Ertz, whereas Team 12 would get Nick Chubb, DeAndre Hopkins, and George Kittle. That is much more even. Third round reversal is a great option for leagues with live drafts, especially ones that have money on the line. You wouldn't want to put your money down on something where you had half the chance of winning as some of your opponents for reasons that have nothing to do with the competition and are totally out of your control. And that's exactly what happens for people picking picks 10 through 12 because they automatically start with a 5 to 6% chance to win their league compared to the 10 to 12% chance people at picks 1 through 4 have to win that same league before the competition even begins. That'll conclude today's episode. If you like what you heard today, please, please subscribe to this podcast and give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your support with that kind of stuff is extremely important, and I would appreciate it greatly. You can follow me on Instagram, at FancyLawGuy, and pose your fancy questions, and I'll answer them on the show. I would love for y'all to be involved. Thank you so much for tuning in. See ya. See ya.